This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm with our Editor-in-Chief, Mark Galley. Hey, Morgan. Good morning, Mark. Beautiful spring day. Yes, people are here to hear us talk about the weather yet again. <laughs> exactly. Weather's really important in Chicago. Our <laughs> listeners need to get used to that idea. We think <laughs> about it a lot. All right. Thank you, for everyone, for bearing with us. All right. Who is joining us today? Joining us today is Brian Stiller. He's Global Ambassador of the World Evangelical Alliance, the global association which represents some 600 million evangelical Protestants. He's the author of 12 books, most recently, From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A Global Tour of the Spread of Christianity, recently published with University Press. Welcome, Brian. Oh, good to be with you, too. And I'm in Toronto. We get the uh, aftermath of Chicago weather, so... Uh, it's not a little topic here either. Okay, yes, ex- exactly. I feel like it's kind of random that we caught you in Toronto, though, because sometimes I'll read what you're writing, and you're always in a different country. My role is to travel the world. We have <laughs> the World Evangelical Alliance has about 130 uh, national alliances, so I'm in about 50 to 20 countries a year. How do you feel about like finding a job that like actually pays you to travel the world? Well, when you get when you're in your late 70s and you've you've been doing this all kinds of ministries, all your life. This is an enormous honor for me to travel the world and encourage younger leaders. I can't imagine a more rewarding experience in the twilight of one's vocational calling than this. How many countries have you been to? Oh, 85, 90, I suppose. You think you're going to hit 100? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My bucket list. Yeah, there you go. I suppose a person like you on vacation just wants to stay home, though, huh? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I don't want to go anywhere. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, let's get into our discussion today. American Andrew Brunson had been ministering in Izmir, Turkey for more than 23 years, was recently pastoring at Izmir Resurrection Church with some 25 congregants. At least that had been his life until 2016. Brunson was arrested without charges more than a year and a half ago in the purges that occurred after the 2016 attempted coup when tens of thousands of Turkish military personnel, civil servants, educators, academic, journalists, and activists were arrested. Last month, he finally learned that he had been accused of espionage and committing crimes on behalf of terrorist organizations. The Turkish government argued that he had been involved with exiled cleric Gulen, suspected of starting the unsuccessful coup, and the Kurdish Workers' Party, or PKK, a separatist insurgent group. Brunson's trial began last month, paused, and resumed again this week. If found guilty, he could face 35 years in prison. Just this week, referring to testimony against him, Brunson said, I am helping Syrian refugees. They say that I am aiding the PKK. I'm setting up a church. They say I got help from Gulen's network. Brunson also told the court, My service that I have spent my life on has now turned upside down. I was never ashamed to be a server of Jesus, but these claims are shameful and disgusting. So what is going on here? This week on the podcast, we will discuss the Turkish politics that are likely holding Brunson hostage. 
We'll also learn about the Christian population, which is a tiny community in a country that is more than 99% Muslim. So I'm looking forward to talking about the stuff that's going on in one of the most interesting countries in the world, at least according to my opinion. But before we get into that, I just want to remind everyone that everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine, thank you so much because that is a huge way that you end up supporting Quick to Listen, this podcast. And Mark, one of the cool features, I think we've talked about this a number of times on this show, is our testimony feature. Um, Who wrote our testimony this time? Many listeners, of certainly of my generation, won't recall the name. Her name is Kim Fook Fan Ti. She is the woman who, as a young girl, she was seen naked walking down the street with children around her crying after, after an area had been bombed or napalmed. And it's one of the most iconic pictures of the Vietnam War. And this is the story of her life after that. And as God is wont to do, he's uh, to take people who are in horrendous situations and redeem them and redeem their lives And this is her uh, brief testimony, which is based on her uh, book. It's called The Napalm Girl's Journey Through the Horrors of the War to Faith, Forgiveness and Peace, a Tyndale publication. So it's getting rave uh, reviews in the sense that people really appreciate it. Her story's been uh, published elsewhere. Uh, This is the first time we've had an opportunity to publish it. I just think uh, readers are going to really enjoy it. It's kind of amazing when you have a chance to follow up with people who are the subjects of these like really iconic photographs. But in this case, the photograph was just so arresting and provocative, I think, that it feels even more powerful, that story of meeting Jesus. And a redeeming story after it. It's certainly one of the most iconic pictures of the 20th century, no question about it. So if you would like to read her testimony in our pages, it's in our May issue, you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. Okay, Mark, gut check for this particular story. What are you thinking? Well, when I heard about it, I mean, we do hear about this sort of thing happening, unfortunately, too, too regularly. And one just gives a, a mild sigh uh, because, it's, unfortunately, it's just another name in another prison in another oppressive country. It was when I started uh, reading background for us to do this podcast that I just the impact of it just became greater and greater, especially the part that he's been ministering for 25 years, and now he's subject to 35 years in prison. And this is like, uh, it's all of a sudden dawning on me what a grave situation he finds himself in. I'm sorry that it took took a little research to get to that point, but that's that's what it took. And that's where I am now. I'm very discouraged with the situation, yeah. Well, it sounds like he's really discouraged, too. You know, we, I think you're right that we see different pastors getting taken as prisoners at various times. But obviously, this guy seems like he'd come over and done what he'd seen as ministry and not necessarily any political organizing or anything to do with that. And so if you can just imagine someone that's doing ministry. It said like when he was actually ended up being arrested, he thought he was going to go in to get his visa situation figured out. So he was completely caught off guard by all of this. And to just imagine your life going from one where you are working in this country that you've been in for more than two decades and kind of going about your business to caught up in this very large and dynamic political brouhaha that we're going to get into a second has to be (laughs) very shocking and discouraging. And I'm guessing I wouldn't be surprised if in part he knew that some of the Syrian refugees that he was welcoming and trying to um, make a haven for might not have had the best backgrounds in terms of their history. But that's something a pastor does. 
he doesn't do it for political reasons. He does it for humanitarian reasons. And there's always a, always a chance you take when you're helping people. And this probably, it was probably a friend of a friend who said, oh, that guy's distant uncle worked for the PKK. He must be a, he must be a dissident as well. And I wouldn't be surprised if that sort of connection is eventually made. Well, we could stop conjecturing and we could just ask our expert here Exactly. Now. All right. So, Brian, talk to us. What do we need to know about Andrew Brunson? Well, as in any story, you need to back off and look at the broader context. Remember that for hundreds of years, the Turkish Empire, called the Ottoman Empire, it ruled. And it ruled right up to Vienna's doorstep. But after the First World War, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. And the, the aftermath of a country or a nation, and this was a global, a global power, the Ottoman Empire. When an empire breaks and it falls into disrepair and into, uh, it loses its reputation, there is something that happens in the, in the hearts of those people that they want to rise again. It happened, it happened in, in Germany after the First World War, and the humiliation of the loss of that First World War bred in the Germanic community a desire to rise again. We are seeing the same thing in Russia. The loss of the, the Soviet Empire in 1989 has fueled, and even just yesterday, the, the, the next uh, reign of power of, of, of Putin comes at a time when the Russian people want to be restored to its earlier brilliance and reputation and power. The same thing happened in the Ottoman Empire. And so in 1924, when you have this new young prime minister who comes in, uh, whose name is Ataturk, he proclaims the country as being a secular country. And so it's he is he is responding to the First World War, the Allies, how they align and how they distribute power. And they said, okay, we'll no longer be a Muslim uh, nation. But then you have a rise of interest within the Turkish community to being powerful again. And that's where uh, Erdogan's come comes into play. And his taking over of Turkey has he what he did, he established in the 1980s, he wanted to move back from it being a a secular power to being a religious power. And so he started this party called the Justice and Development Party, the AKP, in 2002. And what they are doing now is bringing back into Turkey a Muslim-based nation. And as they do that, they have all kinds of conflicts, like with, like with the Kurds, who are part, Kurds who are are within the Turkish nation, and they go over through Syria, and then they are up in the northern part of Iraq and Iran. So it's a group of, of people of ancient uh, ancestry, the Kurds, who are seeking to form their own country in that part of the world. Within Turkey, the Kurds have uh, have have formed their their own party, the Kurdish Workers Party, and they've been violent, and they have tried to uh, overthrow, they've tried to resist. Uh, bombings and killings and so forth, and that's created the backlash by Erdogan. Now Erdogan came along with Gulen back uh, in the early part of the of this this last century. He's the one that's now in Pennsylvania that I'm sure we'll get to later. And they created this party to try and re- bring a resurgence of Islamic presence within Turkey. And so Andrew Brunson, I think, is part of the whole story. 
He's a, a pastor, so he's been there, tw- he and his wife have been there 23 years. He's been doing a small church, as all churches in Turkey are small. He's been in Izmir, Izmir, which is a, a kind of a tourist part of the world because it's near where the seven churches of Revelation are located. And he has been there working with the other evangelicals for these number of years. And it's an appropriate person for them to pick up, and they have constructed these accusations against him. And uh, he's been in prison now for these uh, number of months. And yesterday, the court decided that they would hold him in prison until July the 18th, which will be the next court date. It isn't, I don't think just somebody said, oh, yeah, my uncle went to his church and heard that he spoke nicely about the Kurds. No, I think it's a constructed story that's trying to bring about a quid pro quo with the U.S. with respect to Gulen and getting him back to Turkey. So Andrew Bronson is a major player within a larger story that's constructed by the state. So more of a pawn of uh, international politics. Very much. Okay. But, it, 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 but, but understand Turkey, when, and I, I, I agree with you that it's, it's one of the great, great countries of the world and a very strategic country. It has been and will continue to be. Uh, we lost the Christian percentage there through this uh, through the last century, but this country is forming another a Sunni megastate and is bringing back Islam back into power, so that no longer will it be a secular state like it once was coming out of the First World War. Yeah, I understand that's that uh, yearning for international dignity is a driving force not only in Turkey but all through the Middle East with many Muslims who feel they've been marginalized by European and American powers. Well, it happens, as I said, with with Germany. It happens with Russia. With respect, uh, as a a non-American, it's happening in America. Make America Great Again is an attempt to to resurge yourself back onto the stage, a stage that you think you've lost. So essentially, Brunson is being accused of collaborating with the PKK and working with them so that back in 2016, if people don't remember, there was an attempted coup that happened in Turkey. He's He's been accused of being involved with that particular coup. He's, he's accused of being involved with those people who were involved with the coup. With the coup. Gullen, who is the, the, the Turk in Pennsylvania that Erdogan wants to bring back to stand trial, he is the one that's accused of being behind the, 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 uh, the attempted coup in Turkey. Now, there, is, there are some real questions as to the legitimacy of this coup as to whether it wasn't self-staged, because where in the, who, what army doing a coup in their right mind would go to the center of a bridge and launch their coup from a bridge? I mean, it was the whole construct of the coup begs kind of a disrepute as it being a legitimate coup. So you've got all of that at play. But the real issue is that the Prime Minister, the president, wants to bring back this Gulen from Pennsylvania uh, to stand trial for the coup. And they're looking for ways of bringing pressure against the American government. And thus, Andrew Brunson, pastor in Izmir, has uh, there for 23 years with great credibility. He has been brought in as the Christian pawn, an American, which is a a double double benefit to the government to try and bring pressure to bring this Turk Mr. Gulan or Mohammed Gulan back from Pennsylvania to stand trial. So there's a kind of the, the summary of it. Part of the question that I have is if he is actually in jail because of his faith or if he is more in jail because he, he's a convenient American pawn to kind of shape American foreign policy towards Turkey right now. 
Well, it, it's a connection, isn't it? It's not one thing. Obviously, they 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 were looking for some kind of uh, uh, quid pro quo because Gulen, who was actually a very good friend of of the the president, uh, he's now living in the U.S. and he's being accused of all kinds of insurrection uh, against uh, against the president. Uh, they're looking for means and ways of bringing pressure against the American government to have Gulen. Uh, brought back to Turkey for trial. And when the American government says you simply don't have enough information for us to do that, uh, then they're just beginning to put pressure on and Brunson became a means for it. But uh, at the same time, the, the, the political dynamic only works when you got somebody that, ha- that has a causal relationship. And Brunson being a, a Christian, pastoring a small church with Syrians and I'm sure people who would be sympathetic uh, to the Kurds, uh, you have that connection. So he's, he's he's not Islamic because if he was an Islamic, you wouldn't you wouldn't an Islamic state wouldn't bring him w- w- wouldn't uh, t- put him in prison. But if you're Christian and there is tension with that church, it, it was when the Armenians were 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 killed in the early part of the century. We had I mean just to, to remind you, remember a hundred years ago, twenty percent of Turkey was Christian. Today, it's 0.2%, 160,000 from 20% 100 years ago. So you've had, you have this, you have this uh, a genocide of, uh, of Armenian Christians, and you have, in the, in the Islamic govern, government's mind, an Armenian Orthodox or an Evangelical, they're all Christians, so they don't distinguish. But Brunson became a perfect kind of model, a gift to them to bring pressure against the U.S. So it's a, you, you, you want to look at this in the, with 360 degrees and realize it isn't just an American that they brought in, but it's an American who is an evangelical, who's, who is out, who's preaching the gospel and would be seen as antithetical to the Islamic State. I just wanted to make one point about Izmir. I was in Turkey 10 years ago and Erdogan had been in power for, I think, four or five years at that point, And already people were starting to formulate some strong opinions about him due to what you're talking about with um, his wanting to potentially shift the character of Turkey from being a secular state to one that felt at least like it was going to be more comfortable centering Islam um, in public spaces. And he'd made a couple changes to, to things um, with regards to that. But in Izmir, Izmir is known for being kind of proud of its secular status and for not seeing itself as an overly religious city. It's one of the biggest cities in Turkey. And at least when I was there and I was staying with people in a homestay, they made it clear that there was tension between the government or the capital and Izmir over how they kind of wanted the direction of Turkey to be. That's right. You have you you have within the state, you have, in fact, a re- recent number showed that uh, that over 5 million consider themselves not to be religious at all. So you have you have enormous pride within many 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 Turks to their secularism and how that uh, that Ataturk had brought in that as a ruling paradigm in after the First World War and they liked that and they pride themselves in that. So the tension internally with uh, Erdogan is over him wanting to make it more of an Islamic state and forcing, for example, within the public schools, forcing a, a, a teaching of Islam even if you're Christian. So there's, an, there's resistance to that within the community, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays it out. 
except that Erdogan has shown such enormous social and political and military power, as he did in this post-coup rounding up of uh, thousands of people, it'll be interesting how this eventually plays itself out politically. And then, and then as a result, what impact that has on the freedom of, of religion within the, in the country. Agreed. So we mentioned that the trial will resume again in a couple of months after being delayed. Maybe you can tell us what happened earlier this week in court with the secret witnesses. Well, they had three witnesses that were that were secret. And what they do, they gave testimony as to Brunson's involvement with the with Kurds. And as a result, with the with the Kurdish Workers Party, which, of course, is the is the uh, uh, the, the great enemy to uh, Erdogan and his and his party. And so when you have these private witnesses, you don't know who they are. Uh, they aren't identified by face. And you don't know what has triggered their willingness to come forward and to make this testimony. And so that kind of testimony in the you know in the normal court of law is simply uh, illegitimate and just gives the, the the smell the smell test here. It's concocted testimony to try and make a legal case. So you're allowed to go to court and just I don't even understand how these people testify. Oh well, what they do they. The, the prosecution finds these people, whether they are coerced or whether they're, they're bribed or whether they are indeed legitimate, faithful witnesses, we don't know. And they, they will simply have the testimony by way, of, by way of phone or by way of tape or by way of some kind of transcript. But they aren't in the court themselves giving evidence. It is brought by some other means into court. And that's just something that's allowed. <laughs> Oh yes, you I mean you know we aren't we aren't dealing with uh, North America and and the rules of and the rules of law. It, it's it's very much crafted by the political will of their political masters. You had mentioned you know this community of one hundred and sixty thousand Christians ends up facing persecution, and I'm I'm sure much of the persecution that ends up taking place is something that just kind of happens when you're that tiny of a minority within a country that's overwhelmingly another faith, and also one where, you know, you talked about the Armenian genocide taking place and how many who had were of Armenian descent had been Christians. And so I don't know to the extent that there are is still an Armenian population in Turkey, but obviously there's probably some residual tension that's been left over between those communities. What would persecution look like in Turkey as a result? It's multi-layered. And, I, and when you go to Turkey, as I have been to a number of times, and you sit with these people, you've got a very small, you've got probably 5,000 evangelicals in a country with 150 churches in a state that's 80 million people. And so you are a, you are a small minority. You are persecuted in many, many social psychological ways. First of all, if you're a Turk, you are assumed to be Muslim. And if you're a Muslim, you're assumed to be Turk there. So to to say that you are a Christian or you aren't a Muslim, uh, it has immediate social implications. And, and and layered with that is that up to recently, the ID card, well, it, the ID card today, it has your religion on it. Now, you can, and it's very difficult, but you can have your religion chain on your ID card. But when that happens, then you have social uh, vocational implications. So if you're working in a job in some company, 
and they see that your ID has been changed from Muslim to Christian, immediately there is impact as to as to what kind of pay you can get and what kind of opportunity you can get in that in that business or in another. And of course, especially is true within in the government community. If you are if you are seen to convert and the manifestation of that is by way of your ID card, there's enormous kickback to your family, to your social standing, into your into your uh, vocational status. So that's not persecution by way of a whip or a prison sentence, but it certainly has enormous social implications. The other kind of difficulty that churches face is that a congregation cannot have a church building. Now, in an Islamic world, if you don't have a building of worship, you're seen to be as a cult. So if if, you're, if your friend who is Islamic says, what are you? I'm a Christian. Yes, but where is your church? Where is your place of worship? And you don't have a place that has some distinguishing characteristics as a place of worship. You are you are diminished in the eyes of the community. And so the Christian community has and now the old Armenian church, of course, it had it had its places, but a lot of those have been lost. But evangelical community today, they have great difficulty. Now, what some of them have done, and I was just a few months ago, I was in a few churches in uh, in uh, in Istanbul, and what they have done, they've taken the second or third floor of, a, of an office building, and by having it rented out by an individual, because a church couldn't do that, they have recreated it into a into a very pleasant worship setting. And so they're trying to do that. But if they could get the permission to own their own building and really create a physical, obvious church, that for them is that for them is critical. There's another thing that relates to all of this, and that's financial resources. I have found that the church in Turkey, remarkably more so than in most countries I visit, they really lack finances. And I was I was curious about this. Why do the the pastors they have to find other work or they have to get work uh, support from overseas. And the reason for that is there is fear of pastors to introduce their people to giving because there's a popular myth abroad in Turkey that the way people come to faith is because someone gives you a Bible and they put a hundred dollar American bill in that Bible and they entice you to faith by way of payment. And that myth has, has enormous overrides for a pastor who's introducing people to faith, to Christian faith and to Christian discipleship, and introducing the idea of, of tithe and of, uh, of giving. That has, that has played off very—there's been, there's been coolness to the whole subject. There's a fear of introducing that, and as a result, there is a very, very low giving rate among the, the Turks in the, the churches. And so they, they lack finances. And this is one of the reasons why it's really important that uh, international churches and communities provide support there. So there's a, there's a few things. It's layered. It isn't just one thing, but it, there's a certain, there's a spirit of persecution uh, that, that's at work there. And then when you're very, very small, when you're just a small, small community, you, you feel very much alone and they have various activities that bring them together. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. I'm here with Tom Schreiner, one of the translators of the Christian Standard Bible, where he talks about getting into an argument over how to translate Yahweh. 
So this is a huge decision for our translation. Should we translate it Yahweh or should we go back to L-O-R-D, Lord in capital letters, like all the other English Bible translations? So in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the first edition of this translation, we, we translated it as Yahweh, but not always as Yahweh. But we finally decided we're either going to be all in or all out. We're either going to translate it Yahweh every time or we're going to go back to what the other English translations did and translate it Lord in capital letters. And at the end of the day, we went with Lord in capital letters because we actually thought that tradition played an important role here. We, we said to ourselves, if, if we're the first Bible translation in English, we would probably render it Yahweh. But we, but we thought it'd be difficult for people to adapt to a Bible translation that says Yahweh is my shepherd and that everywhere it said Yahweh. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com ct. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. We talked earlier about this like tiny Christian community that exists. However, we published an article a couple weeks ago that said... Turkey's churches, famous for historic schism, finally agree on doctrine. And the article mentions that, you know, within this small community of Christians, you have Orthodox, Catholic, Armenian, Syriac, and Protestant churches. So it sounds like there's a lot of diversity within this small community and that this small community is actually not super unified. Oh, no, it's not unified at all. You're dealing with the Middle East. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no unity. And you've got these historic churches. You've got the Orthodox, which is the dominant church, and the Orthodox become, although I've, I visited the Orthodox, and there seems to be greater unity now than before. Persecution has a way of doing that. But you do have these historic memories and hist historic institutions. And so uh, at a conference we had in Bogota last week with the Global Christian Forum, the Orthodox are, are very uh, annoyed at evangelicals for coming into their community. Uh, and encouraging people to be born again by the Spirit. They said they've already been baptized. Why do they need to be baptized again? And so you have uh, you have historic institutional self-interest that creates these these silos of Christian communities. And uh, Turkey is not exempt from that. However, there is, there is increased activity of fellowship and uh, cooperation among them and I I've, I've seen it and I've and I've heard people speak well of each other and getting together so there is a there is a, a growing uh, sense of, of of identity just just for that but there is a, a growing sense of fellowship as well but you're dealing with the middle east and you've got so many factors at play personalities and I and I said historical and institutional reasons that create this uh, division there is a, a larger movement to help Orthodox and Evangelicals have a more amicable relationship. I know Luzon has an initiative about that. 
In fact, I'm going to a conference this June to, to again, to encourage the mutual respect for one another because uh, both of them are, in the end, interested in in uh, spreading the Christian faith, and uh, the Orthodox have their their presence in a lot of places that evangelicals are struggling to have a presence in. So that's that's encouraging. At least they're starting to think about it in Turkey. We put together this group called the Global Christian Forum, which is Roman Catholics, Evangelicals, and Orthodox, uh, mainline Protestants, and Pentecostals. And we we met together for a week last week in Bogota. And again, these bigger issues we deal with in a in an environment of trust and fellowship and and uh, uh, and worship. Uh, but we face the, the 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 issues and the questions honestly and with a fair bit of intensity at times. But we've created this global forum in which we can handle some of these issues and find ways of bringing resolution to some matters on the ground. So it, it is, as you say, there is a new day, and uh, we're finding just more opportunity and more reasons, notwithstanding the biblical call, but other reasons to f- find fellowship and cooperation. Brian, is there anything else that you think our listeners should know about the Christian community in Turkey? It needs our support. It needs our prayer. It is. It has suffered under enormous oppression, not with, not the least of which, of course, was the Armenian genocide of the earlier part of the 20th century, but also simply to find a way forward in giving presence and witness of Christ and, and the legitimacy of that witness of Christ in that community. So the thing that I mentioned earlier, but them being able to have churches, places of worship, that's a critical strategic missiological operation that really needs to take place. And our prayer is that there would be an opening opening toward that. Although as the government becomes much more Islamic in its uh, overlaying of this religious vision in the country, the old secular vision is being diminished. And so it's a place of, of enormous influence. It's a bridge of Europe and Asia. And Given the Middle East and all the things that are going on there, it's a critical country for the well-being of the Middle East. So there are many factors at play. In the short, put Turkey on the top of your prayer list today and tomorrow. And go visit, because it's a great country. It's a wonderful country. It's Get someone to take you to the seven churches of Revelation as a start. Go to them all and read the text. Do a Bible study. And it will just give you a whole new understanding of the activity of, uh, of 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 Paul and his and the and his colleagues in the opening of the church in the uh, the early part of the Christian era. At this point, do you think that Brunson is going to be convicted? Who knows? It's uh, it's a it's a political decision, and political decisions, you know, are made for a whole variety of reasons. Whether Brunson is sufficient fodder for the Turk government to get the the president of the U.S. to give up Gulen, that's quite unlikely. I think he needs more, a a stronger case to get the U.S. government to give up uh, Gulen. Whether the government sees this as a no-win situation and eventually lets Brunson go, I don't don't know. Or maybe they just, they simply have to save face and give him a, a, a sentence. So within all of that, because we don't know, there are so many factors at play, and then you've got personalities who who make final decisions. This is where prayer is so critical that Andrew would be strong, that fairness would play its way out. Now, interesting enough, the Evangelical Alliance in Turkey, it's even though it's the, the community is small, we have an alliance that is very, very much at work. And for example, back in 2002, I think it was, 
there was a there were some Christians that were murdered who were part of a, a publishing company and the Evangelical Alliance it had multiple court cases or court appearances before finally there was a judgment brought against those who had uh, the, the the eight the eight people who had killed it brought justice so that community this small evangelical alliance in turkey is working very hard on the legal front and andrew brunson is one of their prime cases and so they need funding they need prayer they need encouragement to help on this case prayer for andrew and his family and prayer for the decision makers that they would see it in their in their interest and in for for justice reasons to free him and allow him to go about his life but while he's been there he's a uh, he's been writing some interesting songs and one of the songs that he wrote is a powerful testimony here it is you are worthy worthy of my all my tears and pain i lift up as an offering teach me to share in the fellowship of your suffering lamb of god you are worthy of my all you are worthy worthy of my all my tears and pain i lift up as an offering teach me to share in the fellowship of your suffering lamb of god you are worthy of my all you are worthy of my all adopted as a son or brother to the king indeed i will share in your glory if i share your suffering jesus you are worthy of my all you are worthy of my all but my heart faints drowned in sorrow overwhelmed make me like you cross bearer preserving faithful to the end to stand the trial and receive the crown of life you are worthy worthy of my all this is my declaration in the darkest hour Jesus the faithful one who loves me always good and true you made me yours you are worthy of my all i want to be found worthy to stand before you on that day with no regrets from cowardice things left undone to hear you say well done my faithful servant now enter your reward jesus my joy you are the prize i'm running for you are worthy worthy of my all you are worthy worthy of my all what can i give to the son of god who gave himself for me here i am you are worthy of my all thank you for reading that it's very powerful it's uh, it, it it suggests to me that he's uh he really needs encouragement obviously from from god personally in the holy spirit but maybe from us as well he really wants to be faithful and i think he's finding it difficult to be so understandably so it must be very uh despairing to be in a situation as i travel and meet with people in prisons and you know whether it's Pakistan or Nepal or uh, Iraq, you, it is, you, he's in a cell, for example, he's in a cell made for eight people and there's 23 in his cell. So just imagine yourself being crowded in a cell with others, with all of the, the, the human physical bodily factors that are, are at work within a constricted space. And so you have people who, I mean, we we, we come out of our, this Christian tradition. We've we've uh, we've read the stories of people in prison who've been persecuted. But right now, as you and I talk together, as the three of us are online, and as people are listening to us, Andrew is in prison in Turkey for being faithful to the gospel, and he's lonely. He the anxiety inevitably crowds one's mind because you don't know what the future will be you look to july 18th which is uh, which is a, a couple of months away and you have no idea what will be then so it's good and it's interesting that the lord makes very clear not 
to forget the prisoner because we usually do. And that's what prisons are for. They're to lock up people to get them out of our way so that we'll forget about them. And so for Andrew today, as the three of us talk, let's think about Andrew and then allow that, that, that thought, that, that connection by way of the spirit, because this is how, this is how prayer works. It connects us. It networks by the spirit. Think of others in other parts of the world that are also in prison that are lonely and need our help in prayer. So he becomes a catalyst, not just for praying for him and for his family, but for others who too are suffering for the cause of Christ. Thank you for provoking us to to be contemplative and to to think of things like that. And you're right about how prison can often make it easy for us to forget things. If you are a listener and you would like to share your own thoughts about the podcast, you can send us an email. We're at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. You can go on Twitter and talk to us there. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where people share something that is bringing them joy. Mark Galley, ready to go? Yes. In the continuing saga of Mark Galley and his weightlifting routine. I had, if anyone missed it. If anyone missed it and is following this, I'm sure you're taking notes and you've been following me since last uh, June when I started this and couldn't do a single pull-up. This last week, I did four pull-ups. I bench-pressed 200 pounds and I did a plank for three minutes. A three-minute plank? That's pretty good. Plank. So let me just say this is a word of encouragement, all you exercise people out there. Stay with it. It will make a difference. So what was the secret? Just consistency? Yeah, it's the consistency. And, uh, well, you know, always pressing yourself. Uh, some weightlifting routines want you to uh, uh, lift till failure until you're just absolutely exhausted. I, I think that's a stupid idea. I, I, li- I, I lift to, I'm really tired right now, <laughs> and allow the growth to go gradually. Because I'm 65. I don't want to get injured. No. But even if, you, even, even if you do it gradually, it just, it's, uh, I'm, someday I'm going to write a, a, a book or tell a testimony on how weightlifting has not only helped my body, is there's there's been spiritual benefits, but that's I will say that for another podcast. All right, where can people find you? I'll tell you this. You can see a profile of me in weightlifting. Mag- no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could find me on the Galley Report, which is a newsletter I put out every week with Christianity Today. It's uh, you can find it at christianitytoday.com/slash/thegalleyreport. G A L L I report. It's a newsletter with links and commentary on those links. All right, your turn, Brian. What I have joy for today, uh, this is a bit personal. It's not weightlifting. At uh, 76, I walk and I do weights, but uh, not like you do. So I golf a lot. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to do that then together. That's great. That'd be great. In in our family, we have uh, two boys that have enormous challenges, uh, mental challenges. And it's it's one of enormous concern to us all. It has implications that uh, I simply wouldn't be free publicly to, to express. But just yesterday, a person that we were looking for to help, to bring understanding, connection, uh, brokerage, networking, all the things that go and, go and play when you have disabled children, that person came into play. And we've been praying for that person for so long. And to have that happen, when my wife and I last night realized the dimension of that answer to prayer, we were overwhelmed with joy. 
Wow. What an answer to prayer. That's exciting. Wow. How long have you guys been praying for that? Well, the boys are 13 and 10. That would be uh, that would be something I'm not very good at is perseverance in prayer for a, for a single thing I'm asking for. So that's that's a great testimony to that. Thank you, Brian. Can you remind people some of the books that you've written in case they want to learn more about those? Well, it's a number of books. Uh, a book on leadership: Find a Broken Wall: uh, Seven Ancient uh, Leadership Principles for Twenty Twenty First Century. Uh, I we did one with Thomas Nelson called Evangelicals Around the World. This was a uh, we did it with fifty authors to describe our history, our theology, our relationship to other people, how we deal with issues. And today, especially in the U.S., given the dynamic over the term evangelicals and the enormous polarity that's going on within the evangelical community, this book might be very helpful. Uh, Bethany did a book two years ago called An Insider's Guide to Praying for the World. And as I travel the world, I do what's called dispatches. In fact, if people are interested, they can go to dispatchesfrombrian.com. And I do stories about what God is doing. I, in, when I go to a country, I, I have this little metaphor that trickles across my mind, and it says, looking for the footprints of the Spirit across this land. So I'm always looking for God's footprints in a country. So I give historical background and so forth. And so we put together this prayer guide, a 52-week prayer guide, which gives people, uh, if you do it one day a week, uh, it gives you 52 weeks to give you into a devotional about a country. So it takes you into a country, gives you some demographics, tells you a story, gives you some Bible, a Bible reading for the day, some things to pray for, then an actual prayer. So Insider's Guide to Praying for the World is a, is a devotional guide for actually praying for the world. And then the one that just came out, uh, InterVarsity Press, from Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a global tour of the spread of Christianity. Here's what I was interested in. In 1960, there were 90 million evangelicals. Today, there's 600 million. I wanted to know why. And so that triggered my search to look at it missiologically and in terms of in terms of theology. What are the things that that have increased this community in such a dynamic way over the last few years? And that's why you had 400 sources for that book. I'm so impressed. <laughs> well, I, I did my I did my research. And the website, again, is dispatchesfrombrian.com. That's right. OK, that's a great resource. All right. My precious moment is. The fact that I basically almost finished my spring cleaning. I hate spring cleaning. <laughs> it's very terrible. I took all my winter clothes and I put them under the bed, put all my winter clothes and my clo- or my spring clothes in my closet. And then I went through all my piles of stuff that, you know, sometimes you like have these like boxes that you're like, I will go through that later. And then later was the past two days. So <laughs> check, get that off your list. Check. I know. Well, I think the moral of the story, every time I do this type of cleaning, though, is just like have less stuff, you know, like why didn't I get rid of more things? Yeah. It only gets worse once you get married. (laughs) Have kids. I know. So if you could learn to do that now, you'd be in great shape. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and almost anywhere else where you want to listen to a podcast. You can find Quick to Listen there. Thank you to everyone who has left wonderful reviews on Quick to Listen. We really appreciate your feedback. So thank you so much for that. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms 
CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.